You're listening to Youth Ministry Maverick, a podcast about mold-breaking methods to invest in the next generation of the church. Here's your host, Jeff Harding. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Jeff. You're listening to episode 18, The Liturgy of Politics. I'm very excited to have our special guest on today, Caitlin Chess, the author of The Liturgy of Politics, which is now available for purchase today, September 8th. And the reason why I'm having her on the podcast is because the way we model for our students how to engage in politics is crucial, and it has never been more polarized and more divisive than right now. I really think that. And our students need to be able to have space for discussion. Uh, If we encourage our students to ask questions, wrestle with concepts, be okay with doubt, be okay with the words, I don't know, and being able to study and figure out and lean more and more independence on Christ for their salvation and growing in faith. Why can't there be any sort of process beyond this is right, this is wrong, vote only this way when it comes to politics? Because it's usually either that or we just avoid politics altogether. And as I'll talk about with Caitlin, uh, there are words like injustice and oppression throughout Scripture. And if we just skip over them because they are buzzwords, we're not doing anyone any favors, especially our students. So let's go ahead and hop into this great conversation with Caitlin Chess. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with me today. Uh, for those who don't know you, um, could you give us a little intro of who you are and what you're currently up to? Yeah, so I am uh, still a student at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm almost done with my THM, and I work at a church in Dallas uh, doing ministry with young adults, so people in their 20s and 30s, uh, mostly the women, and I'm a writer, so I've been writing for uh, Christ and Pop Culture for a little while now and some other places when I can, and my first book uh, is coming out September 8th, uh, The Liturgy of Politics. Very cool, very cool, yes, and we are here to talk about that book. Uh, So listeners, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, her book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor, launches today, September 8th, wherever you get your books, um, several places, and we'll mention that at the end for sure. And I want to spend as much time as possible on the book content, uh, but the writing of politics and Christianity, especially together, is certainly one big hot take on its own as well as anything that follows the announcement of that one-two punch. Uh, You have the courage and writing ability that this political science major is sorely lacking. Uh, So I think it would be incredibly beneficial for you to talk about your journey that led to you writing uh, this book. So Caitlin, what were the big political movements and events within the context of culture and the church that led you to writing this book? Yeah, so I um, was a student in college uh, from 2012 to 2016, thought I was going to go to law school, pre-law, um, and was really interested in politics, cared about it a lot then, and thought that's the path. And then 
had an internship at a church, a youth pastor gave me a bunch of opportunities to teach and to, you know, write Bible study curriculum. And I very quickly thought, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, but I just need to go study the Bible. And this pastor was a DTS grad. And so that was really all I knew at the time. I didn't really know the idea of what a seminary was. I just knew he had gone to this one. And so I'll go there. And so did what felt like a very 180, you know, turn away from law school to seminary. And right when I got here, it was the heat of the 2016 election. And so the conversations I was having with fellow students, you know, in class or in the coffee shop on campus or just, you know, all over the place were often about politics because it was such a current issue. And I quickly realized that this was a really important election. There was a lot of, you know, conversation about evangelicals and who evangelicals were supporting. But there was also a lot of conversation in the seminary context of what the role of pastors and ministry leaders, spiritual leaders was in all of this. And a lot of the things I heard from my classmates and sometimes from professors was, that's not our job. Let's just leave that to the you know political professionals and we'll just kind of stay out of it. And I understand the heart behind that. You know, it was fear uh, a little bit of wading into something difficult and then a healthy caution of just, I don't want to do something that will be harmful to the gospel, to my people, um, but became very convinced that there needed to be a role not only for pastors to speak into, okay, what are theological issues that have, you know, really serious political implications, but then also, you know, what are maybe forces that are forming our people in really negative ways that if we're not involved, someone will be involved and they will have something to say, and it probably won't be very good theology. And so it quickly became, became clear to me that this was a conversation that people in my context needed to be having. And it didn't really seem like we were, um, if we did have the conversation, it was usually keep that out of the pulpit. And so that kind of started a journey of a few years for me of reading everything I could get my hands on that had to do with political theology and spiritual formation. And then just talking to a lot of people, um, anyone I could convince to have a conversation with me about this to try and get a handle on what I thought would be, would be most helpful. And so the goal really was, you know, I would love to just hand a big stack of books to, you know, my friends who are graduating with me and saying, hey, I read all these things, you should read it too. And I've learned that that doesn't usually go over very well. And so the goal was sort of how can I make this really accessible and kind of in one place, so that if they'll read anything at all, it might just be this one thing that a friend of theirs wrote, you know, to, to ask some questions to poke and prod in some places. And so that was really the goal. Very cool. Yeah, what what do evangelicals think about politics? What do people think about evangelicals thinking about politics? Um, Certainly quite a time to be at Liberty around the 2016 election. Uh, If I could have gone back to college, I definitely would have also been a history major. My mom was Mm -hmm. a history major. And when I first started college, I thought, oh, it's a bunch of names and dates. And I'm more (laughs) focused on the function of the government. And I often tell people it only took a degree in political science for me to become completely apathetic and want to stay away from it. And uh, reading this book and thinking and looking at what people uh, have been sharing, what believers have been sharing online and talking about there's a better way, you know, reading people like Tim Keller and Ed Stetzer who talk about uh, and Daryl Bach being able to kind of go between and you're not all one party, but you recognize issues and see how it perpetuates and how the path you should follow is really a narrow one. And I'm pretty sure Jesus says something about a narrow path. <laughs> um, so there are several excerpts in the, in the book that could help frame the content uh, of it. And the Southern Baptist in me latched on to the personal relationship language that you used 
uh, and that I heard so often in youth group and in children's ministry myself. So let me go ahead and read the quote. When we primarily think of our faith as a personal relationship with Jesus, we will view church like any other social group, another opportunity to meet people with common interests. Our political engagement will become a personal issue where we untangle social and cultural issues on our own, taking inner convictions and translating them into personal activism. Instead, the most politically significant aspect of our faith is the reality that is birthed and nurtured in an alternate political community that serves another king and awaits another kingdom. Jesus wasn't making converts, that is, individuals who would pledge their individual support of him as a religious leader, but citizens of a new kingdom. Uh, as much as Christians tend to, that's the end of the quote, <laughs> as much as uh, Christians tend to blend their beliefs and political opinions together, uh, one example that you describe so well in the book, uh, you, t- you talked about as being the patriotic gospel. Um, reading this excerpt makes apparent that as fused as those two elements seemingly are for many, there is still a critical separation. The church as the catalyst for the new kingdom of which we are citizens and our inner convictions that are seen as synonymous with our faith, but are actually fueled by identification with earthly, earthly ideologies. Uh, I say all that to say that the next generation, the students uh, at my church uh, and in youth ministries all over the country, they have experienced this separation bitterly for the most part as they fail to see the characteristics and commands given in Scripture aligning with much of the current political participation, especially from evangelicals. The fact that several high-profile evangelicals lately have said that only true believers will vote for the Republican ticket and doing otherwise is quote-unquote demonic draws a substantial line in the sand. And that line only seems to frustrate young believers even more. Uh, So Caitlin, no softball question here. If you consider yourself a true Christian, does that mean you are obligated to vote Republican and Republican only? (laughs) Uh, No, (laughs) you're not. Um, You know, one of the things that is so interesting to me that a lot of us evangelicals struggle with in lots of areas is we tend to think, well, we just plopped up out of nowhere and we're just here. You know, a pastor in a Bible showed up in my neighborhood and they made a church and it's just not connected to anything else. Um, and sometimes we have to learn our own history and, and I don't get into this much in the book. I do a little bit, but I, I, I would encourage people to do some of their own research, but to recognize that this particular place that we're in, where a lot of evangelicals would say, yeah, to be a Christian is to be a Republican, to vote Republican, to support Republican candidates is a very, uh, different, very contextualized, very cultural and historically conditioned moment in history, right? If you were to go to a first century Christian and try and describe the theological rationale that you have for thinking Christians should always support this one party, I think they would be confused not only because I don't think that's the right (laughs) position to take, but also because I think a lot of it just would, it'd be so, so contextual to right now, it wouldn't make any sense to them. Right. That doesn't always mean it's wrong, but it does mean we have to recognize that it doesn't come up out of nowhere. Uh, Mm -hmm. A pastor didn't just sit down and look at their Bible and go, okay, I've read this thing. I understand it. And I think the way to apply it is to vote Republican. No, there's been a long history of evangelical leaders who have tried to um, get sometimes very good social and political goals passed by partnering with Republican politicians, the Republican Party as a whole. And sometimes those partnerships were positive. Sometimes there's Christians who partner with the Democratic Party in in positive ways. 
But in our history of, of primarily white evangelicals in America, our history has been one of partnering to the point of idolatry, of getting into a, a, to a place where we're not getting the goals that we kind of set out to initially get, but we're giving a lot. We're giving kind of unconditional loyalty and support. Um, there's this great podcast, uh, Pass the Mic. There's an episode that Andy Crouch does where he talks about how, you know, over time, what starts to seem like an equal partnership where, you know, we'll work with you. You'll give us some of our goals. We'll support you some of your goals in exchange the way idols always work is it initially seems like a really good deal for you. And then over time they ask for more and more and they give less and less of what was promised. Hmm. And I think it's important for evangelicals to know our history and then to say, okay, if, if that is the place that we're in, then it's important to make some changes to recognize our theology has been shaped by some of that history, by some of those um, motivations that aren't always just theological in nature. They could come from trying to seek power or maintain power. And it doesn't mean the people who are doing those things are, evil, it means that like all humans, they're sinful and fallen and they have propensities towards certain sins over and over again. And, and power does something to you. It can corrupt you in certain predictable ways. We see that throughout all of scripture. And so kind of taking some time to think about our history and why we've come to that place. And then I think having the ability to say, okay, there's some really good benefits to being a part of a party. It means you can push the people in your party to be better on certain things. It means you can partner with people that have similar goals. You know, Michael Ware, who wrote the foreword to my book, is a Democrat. He'll tell you that. You know, he's worked for Obama. He's worked for the Democratic Party, for uh, people who are strategists and thinking through how to get faith involved in those campaigns. But what he will tell you is that part of what it means to be a Christian who's part of a political party is to push that party when it's doing something wrong. He's not there to just be a full loyalist to the Democratic Party, agree with everything they say. And I hope the same would be true of Christians who tend to find themselves more aligned with the Republican Party is that, okay, there are some political preferences I have that make me more like this party than the other one, but I don't come there to find my ultimate sense of identity, to find my primary community. I have that somewhere else. And so I can use this thing strategically and creatively. It can serve certain goals for me, but not have to be the sum total of my engagement. And even if I'm a part of a party, having the ability to say, for example, this upcoming election, you know, all these people in my church are asking me, they're not asking me, thank goodness, who to vote for, because I would say, I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> but they are, they are saying, like, how do, how do I think about this? You know, how do I think about mm. two parties that there's things I agree with in both, there's some really awful things in both, and I don't know what to do. And yeah. what I tend to say is not, okay, here's the answer, you, you know, one of them is better than the other. What I tend to say is, have the freedom to vote for different parties in different elections, local, national, and to be strategic and creative about it to say, okay, you know, if very locally a particular issue seems like it's very important right now, and there's actual possibility for some change that could really create opportunities for flourishing for the most vulnerable people in my community, you know, right now for a lot of local areas, that's going to be reforms in police departments. There's real opportunities for change there. So could you vote with some of those things in mind as a Christian who thinks that, the most vulnerable people in communities should be cared for and protected. Yeah. And then have the freedom to say, okay, maybe nationally, I don't think that's the the issue that's going to be the next big thing. Maybe I think it's something else. And so I'm going to vote with that in mind and be able to see all of these different kinds of opportunities at different levels, instead of saying, okay, my primary identity and community is in this party. So I just go there a hundred percent of the time. I think that's a better approach. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, uh, you brought up power uh, and service, um, and 
I can't remember if it was Michael who wrote it in the forward or you writing it in chapter one, but there was a statement that um, people nowadays rarely get into politics to serve. It's more about winning. Yeah. And I think it was Ed Stetzer on Twitter who he did a little poll. And so you can't see who voted for what, but he said, if for some reason we found ourselves with the democratic nominee for president being against most kinds or all kinds of abortion, would you vote for them, not vote for them or stay home on election day? The most popular vote was I would vote for him. The second most popular was I would stay home. And the very lowest, like hardly anybody voted for was, uh, I wouldn't vote for him. Mm. So, uh, Ever since 2016, I started thinking about what are the future implications for the GOP, for believers, for evangelicals specifically who are shouting from the rooftops all kinds of defenses for President Trump or really anyone uh, on that party, no matter if it's local or whoever else, it's just like this is the absolute right thing. And as I mentioned, some uh, prominent evangelical leaders really going so far as to spiritualize it and say, it is of the devil if you do these things. Um, Power and service. um, Dr. Daryl Bach at DTS, uh, he highlights this very well and has done it uh, at our church. When you look at um, passages like Ephesians 5 and you look at husbands being over the wives or serving the wives or other prophets or other pastors, and you look at all the verbs and definitions in there of power, they are all pointing to service, mm. not overbearing, not you will do this, not wielding this, but yeah. as Christ set an example to humble yourself, to give your life for, to put everything else and everyone else ahead of yourself, mm. to sit at the least uh, honorable place in the table, um, all of these things. And so to have that great um, idealized notion of politics and public office being a place for service, especially at the national level, I feel like has all but vanished. And uh, certainly talking about conduct and character and arguing for that, uh, it is night and day to see some of the same evangelical leaders and others uh, staunchly for reasons of conduct wanting President Clinton or other uh, senators or um, local officials caught in scandals to be out of office because of their conduct. And yet when it comes to conduct of maybe present officials, including the president, it's all about policy. It's all about, well, if you want conservative judges, if you want these things, then you need to basically either hold your nose and vote for this person or you absolutely need to vote for this person because it's the best and right thing to do. And there's no room for discussion. There's no room for nuance. There's no room for really thinking about um, the biblical perspective on it and how it translates to what is a limited, finite government and world. Um, so yeah, that, that issue of power, I think, is one uh, that really has kind of perplexed us as far as well, what are we fighting for? Are we fighting for the power, aka the ability to serve and humble ourselves mm-hmm. and do that as Christians? Or are we looking for, we want to set all the rules and basically make um, America the new Israel before God restores it and actually redoes it himself. 
Um, what's, what's your view on, I know you talk about it in the book, but as far as power versus um, uh, service and conduct versus character, uh, what are the things as you were writing it that you saw how people ask you about, you know, just as far as thinking about that balance or that thing that's very much out of balance even? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that was the most kind of mind blowing and exciting to me when I was in seminary was having uh, an early class where a professor kind of tried to give us a really quick overview of Genesis to Revelation with an emphasis on, you know, from the very beginning until the very end, this image of creation created good and then eventually redeemed and humans in physical real bodies doing work to steward that creation. And that was just such an animating, exciting picture for someone who grew up in a lot of churches where we kind of thought, you know, the real goal is to be plucked out of earth and, you know, be a disembodied soul in heaven with a harp, you know. Um, But part of what was so exciting about it was this description in Genesis of before sin has entered the world, a commission to both Adam and Eve to work for the flourishing of creation. And what is involved in that is both authority and a kind of vulnerability, right? They have authority in terms of, okay, you're God's representatives, you bear his image, you will rule and reign. And those words don't have the harsh, you know, overbearing connotations that the Hebrew words post the fall have. They have really positive connotations. You will steward creation. You will, you know, have a life in harmony with each other and with God and with other created beings. And and there's also a sense of vulnerability, right? They're still limited. They're finite. They're not all powerful just because they don't have sin. And so even having that image of part of what it means to be human is to have both of those things, to have authority, meaning the ability to create meaningful change in the world, right? To do something with the good things God has given you, but also the very good limitation of vulnerability, of needing other people to help you, right? When it talks about Adam needing a partner, it's not just because he was like lonely. It was literally, you know, the word Aetzer that's used is a word that's often used in the Old Testament to describe God aiding Israel in battle in the sense of, okay, you have this commission you've been given to to rule and reign, to steward creation. You can't do it by yourself. You're just one person. So here's another person that can help you do that together. Um, We talk about that a lot in marriage kind of connotations, but it's also, these are the first two humans. It's just a recognition that as a person, Adam can't do this all by himself. God provides another person. We'll then, you know, create many more, but just that image of, not only serving each other, but working together to create flourishing and there being something inherently good, not a result of sin for both having that authority. um, That's not overbearing power. That's not seeking to win a kind of culture war or, you know, protect yourself at all costs, but that's for the sake of the rest of the world, but that it always needs to be paired with that vulnerability. And I, I think the more that I have seen in my own life, pastors, ministry leaders, or business leaders or politicians, who fall, who have serious moral failings, a lot of what it comes down to is there was a lot of power. There was no vulnerability. They never had any kind of check on their power. They never had any kind of reminder that they were limited or finite. And so those things being really important to be paired together constantly, I think is a good basis for that kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. It's, it's really, I like the analogy to pre-fall and fall and really thinking about, yes, we live in a broken world, but think about the reason and the setting in which God created and gave a command pre-fall. And really, mm-hmm. if that was his heart pre-fall, then it doesn't all of a sudden change. And now we're trying to earn his righteousness because mm-hmm. we can't do that. It's very clear. We need Jesus. Um, but yeah, to do that together, 
And that's, uh, yes, it is an, an example in image of marriage, but also marriage is a big thing that's rooted in the church. And Ephesians yeah. 5, Paul talks about that. You know, this is a mystery that is profound and, and huge and different um, as far as us being the bride and Christ being the bridegroom we're meant to be together. It's the reason there's the body of Christ, not the yeah. one person uh, in Christ. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, idolatry earlier. And so I wanted to move uh, into uh, kind of toward the end of our conversation. Uh, over the past several years, some responses against a push for social justice have gained traction. Critical race theory, cultural Marxism, and what some label as a social justice gospel are some of those negative responses. Uh, in the book, you mention a Bible study that you led through Jeremiah and how, quote, words like idolatry and unfaithfulness were highlighted in bright yellow but words like injustice and oppression, even when they were clearly written in our Bibles, were hot-button political buzzwords to avoid, end quote. Um, you know, I think we would all agree that injustice and oppression are terrible things. And so for us to put those in the category of political, we can't talk about those, we can't deal with those, even though it's very much a part of what Jeremiah was going through, what, what a lot of the prophets were, were trying to face and go through, yeah. uh, and even part of the judgment that God handed down because of their treatment of, of, of others. And I mentioned this uh, on my last episode, but you know, you have the parable of the sheep and the uh, sheep and the goats. Um, if you fed me, then you fed those who were hungry. If you clothed me, right? And so you see that uh, carry on. And uh, this past summer, I led my students through a series on social justice, basically using Micah 6.8 as the formula for it um, to help us observe the effects of injustice in our systems, our society, and definitely our hearts. Uh, it was helpful for several reasons, one of them being that I could now recognize uh, how the majority of my students resonated with those issues and they wanted to learn how to proceed, what to do about it. Um, so, Caitlin, how do you regard or respond to arguments from Christians that push back against calls for social justice? Yeah, I love that you did that with your students. That's awesome. Um, I actually, our youth pastor at my church, uh, we were doing a series of videos once, you know, coronavirus shut down in-person meeting. And the one they asked me to do, which is like a terrifying request, was was just the word social justice. No other instructions were given. <laughs> so it's like, throw the volunteer under the bus, guys. I totally get it. <laughs> um, oh, but it, it was really fun because I know that these kids are hearing all sorts of messages all the time. And it's not always things that they're choosing. Sometimes it's just, okay, well, this is what my parents think. So, you know, I'll, I'll believe this too. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of times it's the people that are not the parents that have a lot of ability to speak into people's lives. You know, even if the parents want to say something positive that can get, you know, blown off. Um, and so what I did was I just started with, okay, that word, that phrase together, those two words together, um, is a buzzword. And immediately everyone has a set of ideas and connotations and they know if they're for it or they're against it. And it's sometimes helpful to just be like, okay, what do each of these two words separately mean? Right. Why do we even say social justice as opposed to just justice? And so mm -hmm. I spent a little time, you know, in the video talking about what does justice mean? What is it in scripture? Um, but then kind of going, okay, well, if we kind of have a sense, most of us do of justice is, is the, the way things are supposed to be people getting what they should um, things matching how God created them to be. Um, if that's true. And then you add the word social to it, social meaning just 
as opposed to individual, a group of people, a community, a community operating the way that it is supposed to be in a kind of structural sense, in a generational sense. And as I was preparing to like do this video, I realized that I really couldn't think of a good example of non-social justice in scripture. It's mm. it's always it's always social. Even if there's a wrong against an individual person, just the concept of the individual and the community at the time when both the Old and New Testaments were written wasn't as stark of a difference as we tend to think of it as. Your identity was bound up in your community. So even yeah. when there's an injustice against one person, it causes a ripple effect. You know, we've been having lots of conversations here lately about fallen leaders and talking about David as an example, where you think that's one injustice against, you know, Bathsheba, against her husband, here's a you know, specific people, and it is, and that's awful. But it had effects, again, you know, not only in the whole nation, in his family, generationally. And so that that's always how it works. And so when justice happens, it's also always communal, even if it's a wrong against an individual person that's been righted, it affects their community because they're bound together and they belong to one another. And so kind of being able to take a step back from the immediate connotations people have to that word and go, okay, if I was just doing a study of what justice in general is in scripture, it would be inherently social. And, and as you said, it would come up again and again, I mean, I don't know how you can read through the prophets without seeing that not only does God care so deeply about social justice, but he especially is bothered when his people think they can go on worshiping the way they're supposed to worship while also committing injustices. That's a huge problem. And so for a lot of us, I mean, I, in this video to our kids, talked mostly just about Jeremiah 7 because it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, the temple sermon. But part of what I love is that he even calls out the people who are saying, I'm in the temple of the Lord. Like what could possibly happen to me? What, what is God going to do? He's not going to judge us. We're fulfilling all our obligations. We're doing the right things. And so even for kids in the youth group, we talk about this a lot of like, you know, just because you go to church doesn't mean, but really though, like just because you're in the building, just because you kind of say the right things. We have a lot of kids in our church who um, are in Christian schools. They know all of the answers. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. so good at all that stuff, yeah. but, but really driving home that, it's not just that those things won't save you. They won't, but also they won't kind of rectify the injustice around you inherently. If you're not doing both of those things then something is wrong and your act of trying to seek justice for a high school or middle schooler, that probably is different than it is for me, but whatever seeking justice looks like for them, that's an act of worship too. And are we missing some part of how God has commanded us to live our lives because we've turned this into a partisan thing where I'm, I'm not, you know, for social justice. What that means to you probably isn't what actually social justice means. And it probably would be more worshipful for you to have that fuller sense of, of what social justice really means. Yeah. Yeah. I like thinking about what that, what that term means. Um, the last episode I did um, with my buddy was defining what does good mean? <laughs> There's a lot of things behind that, especially uh, when you're talking to someone who isn't a believer, which is the yeah. guy I'm talking to. And so, yeah, social justice. Um, one of the things I asked my junior high guys was, you know, if someone who is a suspect and then they are convicted of a crime against someone's family member, people say, well, if that guy gets sentenced and convicted, then he got justice. But then also they say that the family of the victim got justice. So how can it mean those two things in the same word? And they're like, um, you know, and we're talking through it. And just as you said, is what the series uh, pointed to. It's the way things should be. And it definitely referenced Genesis 2 and 3. Um, and thinking about if we're 
the vehicle that God makes uh, his love best known through, right? It mm. was Israel and now it's the church with, with Jews and Gentiles being a part of that. And so um, what does it mean for us to be in the world, but not of the world, but to treat the world right, but not to go too far and make it an idol, right? It's being um, in a balance. And that's a theme that I've come to in a lot of my conversations on here or offline of, I think the church is called to be in the middle and that is the worst place to be for comfort reasons because there's always tension. There's always thinking about how do you balance these things. Now, um, are there social responses that go too far? All the time to all kinds yeah. of stuff. But the problem is that actual problems get overlooked because things that are really a problem and things that have some characteristics of those, but then it turns out, if you look at the details, that's not actually it. They all get grouped together. So when people rightly call out, well, these two issues weren't actually that, they also throw out the issue that was bad. And so everyone escapes from the middle, goes to their polarized cliffs and keeps throwing rocks at each other. And for us to be able to say, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, I don't necessarily agree with your organization, but I can stand behind the phrase and how do I live? How does that, what does that look like? Um, I don't believe that this is right for the, um, society that I live in, but I wrestle with it because I think scripturally we're, we're called to it. Where do I have that discussion without getting blasted, without automatically losing a relationship? Cause I bring it up, you know, yeah. these are the kind of things that our students are seeing and they need that working space. They need that threshing floor. They need a place to be able to come together in community, knowing that they can safely ask questions, talk about it. And even if people are like, wow, that's a really ignorant question, they had the courage to bring it up. And so can you have the decency to answer them? Uh, Even if you're frustrated with that question, you see that um, where they're coming from is a place of you know, not really knowing how someone else is feeling. We're not being put yeah. in someone else's shoes because we want to stay in our own because we have the right answers and everything that you say. If you say this is wrong, you're saying all oh, this is wrong and you're against me. Uh, well, Caitlin, uh, is there uh, anything else uh, from the book um, that you would want to share or bring up or, or tease uh, for our uh, listeners to hear uh, before we kind of wrap up? Yeah, I would just say that... Um you know, a lot of people will see a book about politics and think, okay, well, this will tell me, you know, how to engage politically. And uh, I've even seen some early reviews where people are like, oh, I really thought that was, you know, going to be the point. And really the heart of the book is be aware of what is shaping you, what is forming you. And so even just thinking now about this conversation about social justice, if your immediate reaction to a word like that is really strong and it's really based in kind of a partisan understanding, well, I'm not on that team that's a good opportunity to take some reflection and say, okay, what voices are the loudest in my life? What habits mm-hmm. am I in? You know, like I even recommended um, in some of the pre-order bonuses, I wrote some spiritual uh, practices for us to do during the election season. And one of yeah. them was, okay, take an audit of your media consumption, take an audit of the different kinds of, you know, news or podcast conversations, you know, social media, what are the things that are, are feeding your life? Not necessarily to say, okay, those are all bad and stop doing all of them. But to say, 
what habits have I gotten into that I didn't even realize I was in that are much more spiritually formative in my life than I tend to think. I might Mm -hmm. think, oh, I'm learning political things or I'm learning some social things. They're so much deeper than that because they're trying to, as all of us are, as all the messages are, is to kind of give some underlying story of what should the world be like? What will save us from our ultimate problem? And those are spiritual questions. And so I would just say, you know, as we're coming into that election season, taking opportunities to to pause for a moment, evaluate what things are forming you, and then find ways to make sure that the stronger forces are, you know, the worship of the church together, the spiritual disciplines that historically have, you know, been in the church, things like that to say, those things will form you in ways so that you can learn political things and and engage and do those good things without those things becoming ultimate and, and ultimately formative in your life. Yeah, I like that perspective of ultimate. Um, what's the end? What's the what's the focus? And I think when we realize not only with our media consumption, but with our checkbook, with our calendar, yeah. with all of that, um, there's a lot of things that uh, from the surface we would say, "Oh, that's a priority," and that's a priority. And some of those things we would inherently say, "Well, no, no, no. These are the things that are important." Well, where's evidence of that in your life? Not just in your actions, yeah. but how you form those thoughts to do those actions. And uh, we need to be able to have an objective view and a communal view and process of figuring that out, especially when it comes to politics. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for hopping on for this discussion. Uh, it could go much longer, but we'll wrap up here. Um, I'm glad that your book is now available today for purchase as it will make for good and needed discussion. Uh, Where else can people find your past and current writing in social and theological work? Yeah. So I write pretty regularly for Christ and pop culture, which puts out great stuff. So you should check them out. Um, And then I'm on Twitter way too much at Caitlin Chess, but um, honestly, it's sometimes a great place to have those kinds of conversations and learn from people with different backgrounds. Um, yeah, and you can get the book anywhere that you normally buy books. Fantastic. All right. Well, um, well thanks again for joining me today. Uh, I'll be praying for you as you use your influence and your writing and speaking ability uh, to make Jesus known in this polarized and political world. Thanks a lot, Caitlin. Thank you. That concludes today's episode. Thanks again to Caitlin for joining me. Uh, The link to her book, The Liturgy of Politics, is in the show notes, and I definitely encourage you to go and purchase it. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to it, and definitely share this episode with anyone that you know, especially Christians who value their involvement in politics. We really need a better model and a better space for dialogue and being able to understand the complexities of how a biblical worldview can be achieved in many different political routes. We also have a new website that went live this past weekend, youthministrymaverick.com. There you can access the comprehensive guest list from our podcast. You can find several links to organizations and ministry partners Uh, You have some options to advertise with our podcast, and you can find a link to the brand new Youth Ministry Maverick apparel store. Uh, Most of the proceeds goes to the independent artists that create the merchandise, and the remaining proceeds go back into the podcast to help me expand its reach, um, get some resources, and be able to help others find mold-breaking methods for youth ministry. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, adios.